0: Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99% where the real gains are made. This episode is brought to you by Venga, Venga, Venga. Um,
1: Venga CBD. I, <laughs> that's the actual company name, Venga that's, CBD. Okay.
0: All right. But I, I prefer Venga to endurance. just do the, com. My goodness. All right. All right. Um, <laughs> I'm doing a bunch of traveling right now, which means it's like messing up where I'm sleeping every night, what time I'm going to bed and having to wake up. And I've been using the, uh, the Venga CBD super sleep and it has been working. So yeah, no, I, it really has. I'd really do recommend it. Um, melatonin always gives me kind of crazy dreams and these have definitely been out there, but I've been sleeping really well, but we can do another podcast on my dreams some other time. Um, so yeah, you should check out their website and, um, and see if their products are right for you.
1: Dreams come there free. A, say it again, Elliot. I said dreams come free. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes to their website to get a little uh, percent off from the
1: 99%. It's good stuff. I took mine this morning too. Nice. Or sorry, I, I guess didn't... I take the gel, the everyday cap, caps, but yeah.
0: Um, Today we have... A super fun topic. We are going to talk about preparation for Ironman Hawaii. Um, yeah.
2: <laughs> the
0: well, I say that
2: I'm excited because it's, you know, Hawaii is like the party of the year in terms of our sport. And like last year we didn't get to have it. So I get excited about Kona.
0: Totally. Yeah. I think that especially this year, not having it last year, it's going to be even more exciting. I mean, even the races I've been to so far, people are, much more excited to see everyone that like kind of coming back to a community again. So I think, I think Kona this year is going to be a really special event to, to bring everybody back together and get, you know, the best, of the best on the big Island again. Um, and by the time this podcast drops, we'll be, would you say Elliot, just over 10 weeks out?
1: Yeah. It'll so, be, if you're listening to this on the day it dropped, it'll be 10 and a half weeks.
0: So it is, it is time to start thinking about the preparation leading in because you know, this is a big race, but to kick things off, we're going to talk about some of our own personal experiences there. We'll let Elliot go first. Uh, he's been there <laughs> as, as the a coach impressive. as well. I mean, you did mention that you, uh, almost passed out while spectating. So I feel like that's, uh, that's, that's worth mentioning just to, just to help set the stage a little bit here.
1: Yeah, I, I've, uh, I guess as a coach, I coached somebody who got second and fourth, in the world um ben hoffman in uh 14 and 16 um and he has a new coach now don't worry um but yeah that was 12 years in the making and then um i've coached some amateurs who've done pretty well and and some other pros who've made it into the race and you know not done quite as well as top four but uh nonetheless we're in the mix um I mean, it's hard to get there. So that's an accomplishment itself. Yes. Unfortunately, I've also coached two women who were the first women out. And if it was 50 women instead of 35, that wouldn't be the case. So my stockpile of uh, pros who've made it would have been a bit higher, but that's neither here nor there. Um, Ironman do the right thing. 50 women to Kona and carrying on. um, Yeah. I've been there as a coach three times. Obviously I've coached or in person three times, I have figured out ways to bypass the various, uh, uh, cheering roadblocks, had some cuts and bruises and it's hot out there. Um, and it is a true story. I was, I was, uh, running alongside, luckily enough, one of my amateur men was running stride for stride with a good friend of mine, Lindsay Corbin as she was trying to race into the top 10 and they ran stride for stride with each other for like 24 miles. So two of the four people I was there cheering were all there together. And I was out on the roadblock and you can't take any of the water or anything from the aid stations because the athletes need it. So it's hot and it's humid. And I got to spend a solid like nine miles, I think where I was leapfrogging them because you can't stay in the same position or run the same pace as them. That's illegal. So you have to sprint past them, stop, give advice let them run past. Then you have to go on the other side of the road, sprint past, carry on. It's a hard thing to do. Um, yeah. And, uh, that's my experience in Hawaii. So all right. Bring water. If you're going to do that, that's my pro <laughs> tip. Don't do what I did.
0: All right. So prep for a coach is, is, come prepared with
1: a lot of your own water. A lot of your <laughs> Yeah. Bring your own water and make sure you've got sunblock on for days. So Excellent. All right, Marilyn, what about you?
2: I have um sort of a broad different experiences in Kona. I have spent up to a month training there uh, before the race. Raced it myself as a professional. I've also coached people through the race, um, a couple professionals, not as many as Elliot, but a couple. I definitely Had a guy who was a speedy cyclist and led off the bike one year, fastest bike split, and then just ended up 11th. We just missed the top 10. That was a heart crusher that day for a top 10 male pro. I would have been, I would have loved that, but it was pretty exciting to see him ride the swim and ride the way he did. and lots of amateurs. I've coached a lot of amateurs to Kona. We we haven't had any top three finishes with my amateurs, but definitely a lot of qualifiers and solid finishes. So, so that's been fun. And I already have two athletes this year qualified to go. So so pretty excited about that. So from a coaching standpoint, right from the pros, right through the amateurs for, you know, well over a decade. And then my own personal experience. I only raced there once myself, For me as a professional I wasn't a great swimmer so financially it made more sense once I'd been there once and raced it once it made more sense to do some of the other races late in the year like Western Australia or Canada where I could be on the podium and and earn a good paycheck but I am very grateful for my experience of racing there as a professional and, and loved it and you know had a very focused preparation into it. I did a A heat camp for a month in Palm Springs and then one month in Kona with a crew before the race and then actually got to race the race. So some different experiences there. Yeah. Mikey was, was my guy and uh, Sarah, my female. And, um, he was a, he was a great, we had a lot of fun getting him ready to ride that. You should
1: do a full name drop. They're kind of fast people. You should brag more. (laughs)
2: I uh, am not great with the name drops, but, but he was fun to make him be ready to go fast on that, on that bike course. That was pretty cool. So,
1: well, he was very well prepared and executed pretty darn well, but you know, it's a world championships 11th is pretty darn good.
2: (laughs) Right. So, yeah. So I'm excited about this topic to, you know, 10, 10 weeks out to talk about the things that, that worked for my amateurs and professionals that got them there ready to go and ready to race the things that I did that I felt worked as well as the things that I did that I didn't feel work so well. And I make sure that I don't put my people through that so they don't have to suffer the same way. So, so lots to share there.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I, uh, I've had a, a couple of guys race there as a coach and yeah, it's always fun kind of working them through the mental and physical preparation to get ready for that race. Um, and then personally, it was my last race as an amateur before I turned pro and I've not been lucky and or skilled enough to make it back as a professional, but there's still maybe another year to, to try and do that. Hopefully I can do that. Um, but yeah, my experience as an amateur was, it was, it was really hard. I, uh,
1: I thought it was really hard. Um, well, yeah, like I'll say you actually raced quite well at that time. Obviously now you're way, way faster, but. For all those years ago, I was under the impression you actually executed quite well. Yeah, no, I was definitely
0: happy with the day. I uh, I think it it went well, but I just remember looking at the the thermostat in the energy lab saying one thirteen, and um, and being like, I don't know if I'm going to make it back. And um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I mean, it's it's a real thought and and i also remember like coming coming down the hill looking at my front wheel being like why did i borrow these 404s i remember my shoulders being so so tired from from that bike from just being so tense for 5 hours out there it was probably a, a pretty bad choice for my skill level at the time <laughs>
2: you'd be all right now.
0: I I think I'd be all right now. Yeah. They they would look, they would look kind of, kind of skinny now, but at at the time I was, uh, yeah, I was scaring people sort of all over the road, um, scaring myself too, but yeah, it's a a fun race. And I think that besides just, just the the course itself being pretty awesome and, you know, 85 degrees and 85% humidity. So kind of a bear in that regard, like we were saying earlier, it is a world championship. So that that just kind of changes the tone of everything that's going on during the race, when you're there before the race, and like your, your mindset, I guess, in the days and weeks leading up to the race, and then what happens when you actually execute the race. But today, we're going to talk a lot about how we're going to get ready physically and mentally 10 weeks out.
2: Still a long ways to go, right? I mean, yeah, 10 long ways to go. To- we want to start thinking about this stuff because preparation into an event this important, like you say, world championships, you know, you've got to have a really good solid plan and be thinking about it. But 10 weeks is a long time still until an event like this. So there's some key things that people should be doing and thinking about this time and some things that they really need to be careful that, that I've seen people make mistakes um, and, and, you know, watch them do it over and over again. When you're this, when you're in this sort of like, two, three months window out from a race like this. Number one is, I mean, people get really excited. Like we are talking about excited <laughs> that you're going to the world championships in three months. And so it's like, so just that alone going, Hey, I'm still a long ways away out. Right. And it's also late in the year. So your fitness is, should be pretty high and you've been race. If you've qualified, you've probably been racing for a while already. So you need to do a little check, like, Hey, where is my fitness at for this Point in the year so that I make it all the way to October. <laughs> right. I mean, that's, yes. that's something we really need to talk about. Uh,
0: so if you're uh, if you're 98% fit right now, you should probably take five days off because right. <laughs> you, you've got 10 weeks to build. Right. So I think people, especially in the summer, um, depending on where you are anyways, if you're somewhere where the summer is a great place to train and you're taking advantage of that right now, and you're going for it, you need to maybe you need to pump the brakes and say, okay, like you're saying, I've still got 10 weeks of training left. So, you know, you don't need to be crazy fit right now. You need to be fresh and ready to start what might be your final big training block. Yeah. I think this is do, do
2: a little, do a little check. Like, Hey, I've already been training since probably January And I've trained enough to be fit enough to actually qualify for this event. Maybe you've got a number of half Ironmans or an Ironman in your legs. So you need to, first and foremost, do a what level of fitness am I at check? And where is my fatigue level at check? Because the other part about being ready for something like Kona is you've, you don't, you wanna be really, really fit. Obviously, you're going to the world championships. You're gonna be, wanna be at your lifetime best fitness, but it's um, really important to not be at your lifetime worst fatigue level of the year. So we need to make sure you're not too tired right now at this 10 weeks out. The biggest question you should be asking yourself is like, do I need to have a little, little bit of a, a down period? Not, should I be ramping it up to go to Kona right now? You gave me a funny look there, Elliot. Did I say something weird? No, no, no. no. I hit my
1: hat on the mic <laughs> uh, and surprised like, wait, myself. No, no, no. I, um, I agree hundred percent with both of you. I, I think the fatigue is actually more important than the fitness. I, if I was coaching someone now, I actually wouldn't really care where their fitness was, I would care where their fatigue is. And some people at this point in the year, they might be like, for some reason, not fatigued. maybe they did just take a break. And in that case, you just start building. But what you have to ask yourself is where are you at? Like physically fatigue wise. And then where are you at kind of emotionally in terms of how much hard training do you have to push? Cause you have to remember at the end of all this, you have to rest. A little bit, you know, a taper, and then you have to have enough in the tank to actually go forth on race day. And you kind of need to keep that balance in mind as you're training, because you are trying to, you know, hopefully hit a new height of fitness you've never hit before, but you can't show it if you don't have that emotional energy to push on race day. And that's where a lot of people get caught up in the buildup to world champs, even if it's their fifth one, they're just like, this is world champs. I'm going to go, I'm going to go. And they think that magically they'll just have that energy on race day. And a lot of times you use it up in the prep. Um, so just kind of finding that balance. So it sounds like we're all kind of on the same page. And honestly, I don't think I've ever seen an article written like that. So maybe listen to us because we know a thing or two. So
0: I, uh, just to add that a little bit too, is I always like to make sure that everyone's family is in a good place for the next 10 weeks. And make sure you haven't cashed all those chips for those long summer rides. Like, you know, you need your significant other to be okay with you doing some significant training. Probably if you're, you know, working at a normal job, you're gonna be busy a lot of weekends. And then this entire like trip to Kona, whether your family is coming or not, is gonna be all about you and not at all about them. Maybe a couple of days after or whatever, but you need to make sure that everyone is on board with that plan and you've done enough over the summer to make that like super smooth. Cause you really need them in your corner. So if you're, uh, if you're low on points with your significant other, I'd say now is the time to get some of those points ready for your 10 weeks and the race. Yeah. Do and clear I, your schedule,
2: weeks. all the other stuff, yes. <laughs> all the other stuff too.
0: <laughs> not, not that that's coming from personal experience, but I'm just saying like maybe some of the athletes I've coached.
1: I mean, that's great advice though. Cause 10 weeks out, um, well, I guess we're going to get into it, but I, I know like the eight weeks to the Ironman and, and that holds true for world championships as well as like, is like the, the really hunker down. But if you know, so this is a great time to get a bit of rest and score those points. I just want to say though, if you've already scored those points and you already are rested, I personally think if you are in that situation, you can really start ramping up 10 weeks out. Um, but you also have to know that that means somewhere in that 10 weeks, you're going to take, you know, three, four, five days, really, really easy. At least if I'm coaching you.
2: Um, Yeah. It's it's that old. I remember, you know, when, um, the, the qualification has changed so many times to be able to get there on the so many. So I remember there was like, when the, when you saw it, when the people who could qualify the year before, and then they just did a bunch of half Ironmans and short course racing all year, and then have a little season break and then do this, you know, this great like 12 week Ironman build and then show up at Kona. Like they've raced, they're fast, they're fresh. They've got now the big endurance in them and they're ready to really rock and roll at and Hawaii and they're mentally fresh and eager. And so their build might even be, you know, 12 weeks, something like that. But then we've also seen it, the people that were, having a race like four or five Ironmans to just get to Kona. And by the time they got there, they were like, Oh my God, like I've already done not only four or five Ironmans. I've done that amount of travel. I've done that amount of preparation. I have that many miles in my legs. They have all this stuff and they're like, they get there. and, And now, you know, it's hot, it's a hard race. The competition's tough and it's October. And they're like, whew, You know, that's a, that's a different, different, two different types of preparation athletes and how you're going to manage that going into a race. So even on an amateur scale, it's like, if you qualified last year and you really haven't raced that much this year and you've just done some Olympics and halves and you're pretty strong and snappy and fresh, that's, you know, 10 weeks out you probably do need to get to work. And that's, you know, that summary that you just said. So we taught, it's good to mention both sides of that. However, if you just did Ironman Coeur d'Alene in June in a hundred degrees, you're probably still recovering from that, you know, and you you need a little bit of downtime and reset time and your fitness is going to build pretty quickly. So we don't need a huge preparation into, into Hawaii.
0: So, yeah, so assess where you're at and then, you know, figure out where you are on that scale or with your coach and then, you know, move forward appropriately. But, you know, given the course, given that it's world championships, what are some of the things that we want to be focusing on now when we still have 10 weeks to get ready? Um, and one of the things we talked about before this is, is Marilyn really mentioned that it's a hard swim. And so I'll let Marilyn talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah, you know, I think one area at 10 weeks that you can put a lot of focus into, even if you if your load is quite high at this point in the year, is it uh, Hawaii is a really, really tough swim. You know, it's an ocean swim. There can be a lot of swells. It can be rough just because everybody there is competitive. So now you're you're racing with a stronger pack of people who are more aggressive in and it's salt water. Um, you get way out there and and it can be hard to navigate. And so I always say it's very important to be swim fit for this race. And that means having a lot of, you know, a lot of swim yards in you. And, and I really up people swim training to be ready, not only to swim well there, but so that that swim because of the difficulty of it doesn't take anything out of your bike and your run. Um, that's something that can really change your day. If you're swim fit and you get out there and and you hop out of the water and being tossed around didn't maybe you maybe you swam the same time you always do, but you were able to handle those conditions and you hop up out of the water and it and you feel pretty good for it. Then you're able to jump on the bike in in the heat and the wind and feel strong and feel good. Then then you know that's I think that's can be a game changer in a race like Hawaii.
0: Yeah, totally. I think a lot of people do lake swims in wetsuits um, in North America. And they're probably not quite used to what it feels like to swim in the ocean, get tossed around. And like you said, now there's, you know, 2,500 people that are all about the same time. So maybe you're used to starting out with a small group and you stay with a few people. But in this race, there's going to be, you know, 500, 1,000, 1,500 people in your pack the entire time. And that's, that's a different, that's a different feel to still be hitting someone's arm after an hour of swimming rather than just dealing with that for the first five minutes. So kind of wrapping your head around that kind of cognitive load. Um, yeah, it's, it's definitely a different swim.
1: And you are always going to try to solve for speed, but for this race in particular, you really do want to also solve for fitness, um, for all of the reasons, Marilyn said, and the, the water itself is relatively warm. In the chance of there being significant cloud cover over the top of you is not very high <coughs> and you, and you don't get a wetsuit. So if you are relatively fair skin, like you're getting burnt in the water. So like your burn starts early. And I think a lot of people forget about that. That's just one extra hour where you're in the sun. And that's where that extra swim fitness kind of like balances out the, the role of the waves, as well as the competition around you. Um, and so, however you want to go about skinning that cat, it's definitely more important in this race than most other races.
0: Do you have anything Elliot that you do to kind of like increase swim fitness or any tricks to get ready for open water? I guess tricks is the wrong word, but any tools you use to help people get ready for open water, um, especially for this race, if they're not used to swimming in an ocean.
1: Um, No, I mean, obviously you try to swim in open water as best you can and and try to swim in an ocean if you can, but really it's just like more continuous. I I don't give most people all that many continuous swims, but in preparation for Ironman Hawaii, like longer continuous swims or like something like thousand reps, which is not something I really hardly give anyone ever, but for Ironman Hawaii, it's something I give out quite frequently. And it's specifically for all the reasons Marilyn talked about. And we didn't talk about that beforehand. So we're on the same page.
2: Hey, I'm glad that happens pretty often.
1: <laughs> yeah, it does seem to. But Yeah, so that I guess, I, and and I I don't think if you would have asked me this beforehand, if I would have been able to say that, but 100%, like going through people I've coached, it's always just because in the background of my mind, you just know this, like you have to be fresher coming out of this swim. And the only way to do that is is like longer continuous swimming. And that might be one of the first people I ever met in this sport is a guy who's won the swim at Hawaii. Um, he, it was back when the pros and the age groupers, uh, went at the same time and he's won the swim at like, I don't know, nine or 10 Ironmans, um, John Weston, if you're listening to this, thanks for the help anyways. Um, but he would just, you'd watch him training in, and of course he had an amazing stroke and all that, but he was just always harping on like, Yeah. I do these continuous swims, not so I swim better. I do them. So I run better because, you know, running was his like worst thing. And he's like, I just need to be not tired and sure. He's an amazing swimmer and he's getting out of the water really fast. But then I just started noticing it, like it held through more so in this race than any other race. Um, like you can see that swim fitness transfer over to run, run speed, huh. which is kind of wild, but anyways, there we are.
2: There we go.
0: Um, yeah, I remember talking to, uh, another really good swimmer and he was kind of saying, yeah, like, you know, my wife and I just jump in and swim like three or four K straight. And I was like, like regularly it's like, oh yeah. Like at least a couple of times a week. And I was like, whoa, I like, I never do that, but you know, they have the fitness to be able to do that and keep it moving pretty well, which is, you know, if you make it to Kona, you probably do as well, but maybe someone who's a little more beginner wouldn't want to do that. But I think that, you know, being... Being able to do that. Yeah. could definitely help you, uh, feel swim fit on the day.
1: Yeah. Scale it to your form. If you're not going to win the swim, maybe, you know, like, I, like the people I coach weren't winning the swim, but like Ben would have been doing thousand reps, but I know for a fact, I think one time I gave him a two K straight at race pace, but everything else was more in that 1500, 1700. And then people I have who let's say are like our swimmers are doing more stuff like five, six, seven, eight hundreds, occasionally thousands. Um, but that's kind of like skilled or scaled to their skill level. And I think sure, sure. listening could, could, do that as well.
0: Yeah. And I don't know, another thing Marilyn mentioned, do you want to, do you want to talk about like the, the pull stuff you're talking about?
2: Yeah. I think most triathletes are pretty familiar with, and especially if you've qualified for Kona doing a significant amount of pulling work to be a good open water swimmer and having that, that strength in your upper body to be able to handle it. The, the difference that I do for Kona versus uh, other races through the year is it might do a little bit more just paddles only. And, and that, that's also dependent on person's fatigue level that they're able to maintain good body position and, um, and how good a swimmer they are. I mean, we're not doing any good to take that pull boy away if we're losing good body position, but if we've established that they're already a pretty good swimmer, And um, you know they're they're able to maintain good body position. Then we take the pull boy out and do some paddle work, some you know short sharp powers type stuff with the paddles, and that's going to help you be able to handle. You know, some of those swells and some of the, the conditions you get out there, you want to be able to change, like you said earlier, Jesse, change your cadence a little bit out there to manage those swells and have the strength to be able to do that. So we can be as fit as possible, but for maybe some athletes, if strength is an issue in, in something like the swells in the ocean, that can that can be pretty tiring and, and you lose a lot of speed if you're not able to handle that. So doing that you know, it would even be, and what might surprise people is that it's not bigger paddles. It's actually smaller paddles, higher turnover, no buoy, or um, maybe even band only. And that kind of stuff will really help with, with good ocean swimming and being able to have the power to be able to, to navigate it when it gets rough out there in the back half.
0: Awesome. Yeah. I think, you know, triathletes can kind of get married to that pull buoy. So spending a little bit of time without it can be, can be good. Elliot, you good? You you just duck duck facing over there? All right. All right. Cool. All right. So, you know, one of the big things we have to talk about is the heat and humidity. And I know we can't outline the perfect preparation for every specific athlete, but uh, obviously, you guys address getting ready for the heat and humidity for the day. Do you guys have a specific heat protocol you use? Does it, or do you have like, Yeah. I don't know. How do you, how do you start working on that now with your athletes or do you, maybe you wait, I don't know who's to say.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I, like if, if, if I was coaching you for Hawaii, uh, we would be talking about it now. And then with the pandemic, it's been kind of rough because a lot of people lost sauna access. Um, but sauna, hot tub, both work as does just, you know, living like you guys in Tucson, living in a super hot environment. I don't see as much of a need for day-to-day heat training if you're just living in what i consider oppressive heat which is also what the race is um so yeah it depending on the athlete i off i basically have people ease into heat training and so like what one athlete at the peak of their powers maybe is up to four or five sauna sessions of 20-25 minutes a week but it might take you like years to build up to that because You know, if you spend two hours a week in a sauna, that's going to massively affect your swim, your bike and your run and the amount of energy you have for that swim and bike and run. So yes, you're heat training for the heat, but you're also taking away from a bit of your swim and your bike and your run. So, so just keep in mind, if you've never done heat training before you want to, in my opinion, you might only start those saunas at 10, 12 minutes and just do, you know, one or two a week and just see how you feel. And then, you know, maybe you build up to, let's say three at 15 minutes. That doesn't sound like much. It's enough to do something and it's enough to not shoot yourself in the foot. And ultimately when we started this conversation, we were saying, you need to not get too tired in this training, even though you're trying to do everything. Right. So we do want to add that in, but you want to use it sparingly unless you're experienced with it is kind of my two cents.
2: I think the main thing that people can start really dialing in this far back and the most important thing is how they're, you can, and you can train your body to do it starting this far back is how, what your nutrition is going to look like in the heat, because what your nutrition looks like in a normal race and what your nutrition looks like in a race like Kona is, is really different. Number one, how much dialing in, you know, that's that sweat rate, how much fluids are you going to need, how much you're going to need, and then be able to train yourself to be able to actually handle that much fluids is really important. How much sodium are you going to need? You know, other races you might get away with not using any, maybe you're, maybe you don't need to add additional sodium, but you want to figure that out now and and start to practice it. Then what type of nutrition are you using? Because when it's really hot and humid and you're racing at a, a higher work rate, what your gut can handle is also different. So you might normally use bars or all kinds of solids or all of these different things. And then you get to a race like Hawaii and that's what you're used to racing on. You say this nutrition plan works for me, every Ironman I've ever done. And all of a sudden your stomach's really tightened up in knots or you're, you're vomiting or have GI distress or something like that. So really knowing what type of nutrition, how much hydration, how much sodium, and then training your gut to be able to handle that and being able to handle it under stress in the heat. So as you do this heat training that like Elliot's talking about and and we'll continue to touch on, it's what nutrition is really going to work in that as well. And, and that's something that by the time you get to that four and two weeks out, you've got it practiced and nailed down. Like, you know, you, you just know it, you know, exactly what you're going to use and how it's going to work.
1: I mean, in my opinion, I guess if we're going to summarize two things right now, you'd say, make sure you're rested heading into this final push. You're not exhausted. And two, start your fueling protocol ASAP, even if, you know, like every, every workout that you have a chance to practice eating and drinking in hotter environments, like that's probably more important than anything else, um, in your training for Hawaii,
0: um, yeah, I have a lot of comments sat in here. So just, just yell at me if I'm, if I'm rambling for too long, please tell um, us. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess first thing is touching on like the, the, the passive protocol, like hot, hot tub or sauna. Um, the cool thing is, is that has a pretty fast stimulus, right? Like you do it once or twice and your body starts to adapt. So if you get in six, eight, 10, 12 sessions, like your body will, will start to adapt pretty quickly to those. The bummer is you lose those adaptations just as fast so like if you're going to start them now i think that's great especially if you're kind of slow rolling in like like elliot was talking about but i think you need to remember that like you can't get to three weeks out and say okay i'm like good i'm going to drop the heat protocol now because i'm tapering um you got to keep that rolling all the way through and at least like you know you can reduce the amount of time like let's say you hit your height of um, like what Elliot said, like four sauna sessions or something, maybe you can start backing that off to two or three, but you need to stay in touch with that heat, or else you're going to basically lose all the ad- adaptation you made. um but I think that's definitely something you should be working on. And I think that's a really good protocol to get you like heat adapted. But the one thing that doesn't do is what Marilyn talked about that doesn't get you actually ready to perform in the heat, that it gets your sweat rate up, it gets you ready to like start to handle some of that heat stress, but it doesn't get you ready to say, okay, like, can I actually perform in hot environments? And I think that for people getting ready for Kona, you need to have some sessions where you're actually training in the heat. Um, and you know, there are a lot of ways to go about doing that, but I think you need to have that experience so that you can do the things that put an
1: addendum Actually, training in the heat and fueling and hydrating, right? That was implied. Well, that's what I I just want to make it dead clear. I just want to make it dead clear. If you're, if you take away one thing from today, that's it.
0: Right. And that's, yeah, that's, that's where I was going with that is that, yeah, you need to you need to practice that. And like Marilyn said, you need to be like, okay, like if I'm riding at intensity, can I chug three bottles an hour or can I chug four bottles an hour and how many calories can get in? Can I get in? And you kind of need to do these experiments on yourself before you get to the race. And you need to try that a few times. And, you know, I would also recommend like spacing those out. Like, like you guys have said, that is like super stressful. Like, so you don't want to do a ton of those. Um, but I think that is really important and, and yeah, practice your nutrition, practice your fueling, and train your gut to be able to digest food and fluid while you're really hot, because if you haven't practiced that, you haven't trained that you will not be able to do that on race day. I can, I add in,
2: <laughs> I was going
1: to say, so on that. So like, obviously you might be talking about like a five or six hour ride or a two plus hour run where that becomes really important. Um, But I also think like, and and maybe if you're listening to this, maybe you're only going to do two, six hour rides or two, five hour rides and in two long runs, and that's fine. But if you're doing like a three hour ride and maybe you're going to spend a significant portion of that ride at Ironman effort or even harder, it might only be three hours, but that's your time to really focus on eating and drinking during that effort. And eating like you have the whole rest of the race to go, just so you know, like what, how does my stomach actually handle this? And, and then the other thing is like your gut can get trained a little bit. So that every time you have that, that's just yet another chance to train your gut and, and to practice that rhythm of eating and drinking and to make mistakes. And a lot of people are nervous. Oh, well, my, tr- my training ride is going to go bad and I'm going to end up puking everywhere. Well, you kind of need to find that out. And it's better that you end up puking everywhere in training than in the race. Yeah, I know, I know Marilyn
0: wants to go here, but I think even if it's a two hour ride that you're doing in your bathroom on a trainer, like when you're saying, okay, what, what's the max calories I can eat and drink in this two hour ride in your bathroom on the trainer. I think even that can be a really effective way to, uh, to test things out for sure.
2: You're, you're in the bathroom on your trainer specifically because you're doing, you've got <laughs> heat in mind. Let's be. I was why, why you're saying that so that people know.
1: <laughs> you're you have one the place to ride. Yeah. Why is
2: <laughs> guy got his trainer in the bathroom? Full length um,
0: mirror. I like to look at myself.
2: Yeah, it's probably got hot water running, creating a little humidity situation. Exactly.
0: He, especially in Tucson, like practicing for that humidity, I think is really important. And if you're only training in Tucson, I would say you need to try and replicate humidity at some point because it is not the same.
2: Yeah, exactly. Sure. I will add that, you know, just as we talk about this, the, um, if you have the chance to go to a hot place to train, it's important to understand that you can overdo it as well. Um, you know, like I said, when I raced Kona, I went to Palm Springs for a month where it was like over hundred degrees every single day. And then I went to Kona for a whole month before the race. So that's eight weeks in the heat. And honestly, that was, that was a bit too long. That was a bit too long, a very hard training in the heat, and and I would do that differently. I've also done plenty of other hot races where I have done it differently, and my heat training and exposure was limited to about a three-week build and and then got out of the heat just before so like the two final weeks before so did a good three four week build in the heat did all of the things that we're talking about made sure i stayed cool when i wasn't training and really looked after myself well when i wasn't actually doing sessions and then the two weeks prior to the race when i start to get into a little bit more taper got myself out of the heat and let everything settle down all the you know, heat stress recovery and minerals, and they sort of top up all your energy and, and, you know, all of that stuff, and then travel to the race, maybe, you know, a week to 10 days out. So you can, if you're counting backwards from the race, you know, I tried the just eight weeks straight in a mega hot place, went from dry and mega hot to the actual race location. And for me personally, that was just too much. By the time I got ready to race day, I was cramping a lot. I was overexposed I was I was overdone in terms of the actual heat training itself and but the the opposite protocol of working it backwards from the race day get there 10 days seven days out the week to maybe two weeks before, got out of the heat exposure. But then the four weeks before that did a good concentrated heat training block to work on all these things that we're talking about, very specific training in the heat. And then when not training, staying out of the heat, that worked really well. I know um, uh, this might go be dating myself and going back a little ways. I know Peter Reed used to do a very similar protocol for Hawaii every year.
1: This is the only thing I wanted to talk about all day.
2: <laughs> oh yeah, so Take it. people, it's so good. Some it's people so good. might have to look up. I might, might have to look him up. But he won Kona several times. He, he was a phenomenal athlete, and um, that was actually the protocol that he used—the the latter one that I talked about, where you do exposure and then go away. And and obviously but so, how
1: did he do it? He went to Hawaii and stayed at five thousand feet, where it's significantly cooler.
2: But then he would train in it, so got correct. Out of, yeah. Correct. So what I'm talking about is you have you train in it, so like Jesse was talking about, you you understand what you feel like and get the exposure while well training under stress. But then once you're not doing that, you know I've seen people make the mistake. Well, I turn off my air conditioning and I, you know, don't do that to yourself. Stay cool and look after yourself when you're not training in it. So he would go down into Kona, train, get accustomed to it, knew what he felt like in it, go up to 5,000 feet for a number of reasons, altitude and cooler. He would do that for about four weeks and then he would go back to victoria for the week or two weeks before the race totally recover from that build then fly to the island you know the week of the race and be ready to rock and roll and so you know there is different ways to do it um other people might tell you something different maybe an an eight to ten week heat camp works for some people it certainly hasn't worked for me no i
1: like, literally, this was the only, this specific story was the only thing I wanted to That's talk about. I mean, to, it. talk it's about so it's awesome before. that you did that. Um I can't remember who I was talking to, but we were talking about it. Like, it was for this exact reason. Um, And uh, anyways, the, the reason this is so good is you can look through the history of the sport of so-and-so went to Hawaii six weeks before the race. They're going to be so ready because they're living in it. And the only person who's ever won the race or, like, really performed um, to their highest level when they did it is Peter. And he's also the only one who went up in elevation and also went
2: home before.
1: Yeah, he did both. He did both. And so everything we're talking about, like if you're in this really hot environment all the time, you probably actually need to train easier, not harder because the environment's too hard. And in some ways you have to like do everything you can to get out of that. Um, I mean, heck, even right now I'm, I'm at 6,800 feet or my, my girlfriend's a full-time professional triathlete does ITU stuff, but we're at 6,800 feet. We could keep the apartment like relatively warm. Cause it's nice. We keep it at like 69 at night, which is freaking cold. The building's super hot. Um, but the whole reason we do it is, it's just one more stress. We're already at 6,800 feet. She's already training really hard. The extra couple degrees add up. And it's, it's easier on the system to recover between sessions. And, and a lot of that is borne out from that Peter Reed story And every, (laughs) sorry, um, we might need to check the, cut this out.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Sorry.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, stress is stress, right? And your body interprets (laughs) it all the same. So whether it's heat stress at night or just walking around, going to the grocery store and just sweating your face off, cause you're doing that in the humidity, that's, that's all stress your body is dealing with. And I think, you know, people always just look at training stress, but you know, that's all that stress adds up and it's actually could be taking away from positive training stress. You could be giving yourself, right? So you want to keep the positive that,
1: stress.
2: The last part of that story, I think that hopefully I'm, I'm you know, if he ever listens to this, hopefully I'm describing it. (laughs) He's on a a bush plane somewhere. But like, Yeah. But I think also the part of that story was that not only would he go, he would do the heat training and and do that part of his block. But then when he went back to Victoria for that period of time, it was in that block of time where the speed and sharpening came into play, but he went home to cooler, cooler conditions,
1: much cooler.
2: Um, and so was able to because, like you said, you know, you're not really able to hit effort necessarily as high in the heat that you might need. And in that very last sharpening phase right before World Championships, he actually removed himself from that, went home, was in his home environment. It was much cooler, was much more relaxed, away from altitude, all the stressors, did the sharpening, got a little fresher, got the speed and then went to the went to the island ready to go. So that's another part of it, too. Um just to, you know, get people's wheels turning and thinking about when they, well, because because we're at this point where we're 10 weeks out, you've got all this time to plan all of these things and, and really look at it in blocks and how you might, what you have access to, what you don't have access to, how you might show up there best prepared, um, that, that kind of, you know, luxury yeah, he, time, he stresses
1: great, but it's also dangerous. It's just like running fast and training, right? It's great until you're broken. <laughs> um,
0: Awesome. All right. That was, uh, that was a good chunk of time on heat. Um, we talked about the swim. We talked about heat. Let's, let's see if we can address if there's any specifics about like this bike course that you might want to do things a little bit differently for, or anything people should start thinking about now with that they have 10 weeks to prepare for the bike course, besides like, you know, the heat and the nutrition, uh, anything else comes to mind or maybe
1: not. I just like, knowing your own pace and your know, own effort, because you're going to have five times as many people around you as you're used to in a race. And even if you're, if you're used to being off the front of a race, good luck. You're not getting off the front of this one. Um, unless you, unless you're coached by Maryland and then eventually I'll get caught on the run, but at least on the bike, you'll be off the front. Um
2: hey, I got some good runners <laughs> just not athlete. <laughs> no, I
1: know, but I'm saying if, if you have the fastest bike split, that's he, he's one of 2000 who gets to be off the front. Um, so yeah, it it's it's you're just not gonna be off the front. You're not gonna be in no man's land. There's always gonna be someone around you, and there's always probably gonna be someone around you in your age group. And if you're in the pro field um and listening to this, give us a call. We want to coach you. Um, but uh Anyways. Yeah. It's just knowing your own efforts because you're going to have so many people to mess with your head. And it's not that they're going to be doing it on purpose. They're just going to be doing their own race. And there's going to be a lot of people who are super, super amped. And the first 30, 40 miles, it's really easy to ride fast and it's warm, but it's not that warm yet. And it doesn't really hit you. And there's a reason you just see people barely pedaling the last 10, 15, 20 miles into the course. So the biggest thing is just learning an effort and learning an effort that you can do for 180 K. Um, that's, that's what I would say for this course, most more so than anything, it's like, it's the opposite. It's, it's like less so about how fast you can ride and more about just knowing your own pace and having that internal clock and being able to see just absolute chaos and and tons of speed around you and being like, it's cool. It's a long day. I'm going to do me. So that's what I would say.
2: Yeah, from my from my perspective, um, it really is going to depend if you're in the amateur race, you're in the pro race, those two preparations are going to look completely different. As far as the course goes just hands down broad paint French it's way hillier than what people think Um and of course, we know it can be really windy. Now, it hasn't been super windy the last number of years, but it's it been has, more
1: breezy lately. Yeah.
2: So it's kind of like if you go through history, it has the ability to be extremely windy, which you want to be well prepared for that in case it is. Now, in recent years, it's been less windy and more hot and humid and sort of frying you up from the pavement. Um, but it's hillier than what you think. So, you you know, take a look at that course profile and the elevation. There's, you know, really good climb up to Javi, um, be able to descend well coming back down from there in in straight wind. You want to be well practiced on that on the wheels that you're going to race on. And there's a ton of climbing coming. Once you turn back on the Queen K and you head back to town, there is a lot of climbing and in the back half of the course. So that's something that as you map out your, your key rides to study the course a little bit, watch some videos, check out the profile. It's not just a flat rolling TT in your arrow bars. It is, it is hilly. So be ready for that
0: yeah i really like doing like i guess if you can't simulate the train that is that is a great a great way to do it um because I, I that last 30 miles will chew you up if you're tired and you will lose so much speed from just dropping a little bit of watts and not holding position so i i feel like i i like progressive ironman pace rides to get ready for kona especially maybe more so than like an Ironman Florida or an Arizona where you can kind of soft pedal it in if you're kind of cracked and you won't lose that much. So, you know, like still in that Ironman range, but let's say your, your first set is 5% lower. And then your last set is 5% higher to practice finishing strong and just getting that, that headspace of like, okay, I'm going to ride the last 30 miles a little bit harder than I rode the first 80. I think, I think practicing that early on and then getting in that headspace along with getting in the headspace of yes, I'm riding with 2000 people that are really fast. So I just need to stay in my own race. Like, like you guys were talking about earlier. I think, um, I don't know. Those are both things I like to think about getting ready for a big race like this and then getting for a race, ready for a race. That's hard at the end like this.
2: So what's interesting about you both saying I'm listening to, and you're both saying, you know, um, which I think is great advice on, on 90, let's say 99% of people (laughs) just for fun of it, that this race in terms of mental aspect and execution, staying within in your own race is going to be really, really helpful so that you don't blow yourself up or blow up in the heat or react to too many things um, that are going to put you in a hole. But I will tell you that when I prepared Mikey, we, we did the opposite approach. We prepared for it to be like a bike race for the whole first. Yeah. Like half of the race. And we literally, I mean, we did motor pacing sessions. We did very specific prep to be fit enough and handle the fact that, look, you're going to probably be with 30 guys going down the queen K that are all really strong. And it's going to be a very dynamic race for a long period of time. And you need to be able to one, handle that two know what to do in those situations three how to fuel in it and and regulate your own effort based on what's going on and and react to the right moves and then again finish strong coming back when everyone else is tired i mean you know there used to be guys that 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 won a lot of races and set bike course records by just being real steady at the front and letting every all the guys do the dynamic work and blow themselves up and then catch them in the back half not because they were any faster they were just they would just uh didn't slow down mitch anderson was famous for that in most of his races and he was an animal on the bike but um with mikey in particular not for most races but for this race in particular we we specifically prepared for being ready to handle that and know exactly what to do and and handle it on all aspects and then be able to finish strong and that that really showed up on race day. So, so there's, there's different ways. And obviously if you're, if you're racing the amateur field, you're probably not going to take that, that, um, I was
1: going to say my advice was purely for amateurs and Ben prepared the exact same way that you're talking about as, as Mikey. And it makes sense Mm -hmm. since they're friends, Mm -hmm. uh, and apparently, you know, Mm -hmm. and they've got like-minded coaching, but, uh, Yeah, that's it. That's a hundred percent true. And that's one thing I think that you need to keep in mind. That's a very good point. Everything Mikey was doing made sense for the most competitive Ironman of the year for somebody trying to be at the front of that race. You're pro if you're listening to this, you're probably not that person. And, and when you read a lot of articles, you're reading articles about often people trying to win the race and what you're trying to do particularly on the bike course is a lot different and there's so many people in the amateur race you can say i'm going to be at the front of the amateur race the depth is even more and there's going to be even more people who are willing to totally blow the first 70 miles of the ride and not really know it um so it really does get chaotic out there uh, in the amateur field more so than anything but you're 100 right like That's what I mean. Like
2: it's totally different preparations and, and just being ready to handle that climbing all the way back and finish strong. Um, regardless of which race you're in, that's like the key to that race, knowing that once you turn back on the queen K and head home and be able to handle that really well, that's, that's a really important part of this race.
1: For sure. And you have to be able to fuel and drink if you're, you know, like if you're Mikey or Ben, you got to do the same thing, except at a crazy high speed.
0: Nice. Sorry. I was having some technical difficulty, but I'm back. That was a, a great summary. You guys, I know this episode is getting a little bit long, so I want to talk about the run, but I want to keep it somewhat brief. So, uh, so Elliot, no giant tangents here.
1: Yeah, I was going to say the, ru- a lot of the run is predicated on, on fueling. It, it's just like the run in Ironman, Hawaii to me, everyone says, Oh, the run is so tough. The run is so tough. And to me, so much of it is predicated on, did you swim enough? Did you ride enough? Did you ride enough at speed? And did you practice your fueling well enough on the bike? And then as far as the run goes, that's just a continuation. You don't even need that many run miles. You don't need that much run speed because it's just a war of attrition. So if you show up healthy and you have a good fueling strategy for the run, you just really need to know, well, how fast is too fast on that first 10 K? And then once you get past there, you're just fighting your way to the finish. Um, so in a lot of ways, the run is the least important thing in my perspective. You guys might disagree with me, um, but that's what I would say. And sure, you're gonna do a little bit of run pacing, but that's, that's the general gist of it is figure out your feeling on the run, figure out how fast is too fast. Once you know that, I more or less think you're good to go and spend more of your time figuring out your swimming your bike. Jesse, you look like you're disagreeing, so go ahead and disagree. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, I was sorry. That was, uh, I was actually trying to nod at Maryland to see if she wanted to, to jump in there. I was not disagreeing. I, I totally agree. I, I think that if you're, if you feel good starting the run, then that's going to be the most important thing. So, you know, being able, having done some big days on the bike so that you can, you can run hundred or you can ride 112 miles and then feel good when you start, I think is, is the name of the game here. And then I think speed is not that important because you're not going to be running that fast compared to whatever your your fastest pace is. You're you're going for a a slower run off the bike. And and even if you're gonna run a 245 marathon, which I mean very very few people are going to do that in, in Kona, but you know a couple of guys are like that's not close to their fastest marathon. So
1: those guys can all run two twenty, 220, two twenty five. Yeah, know, so at the absolute least two thirty. So
0: so you're dropping almost a minute a mile per slower. So like, you know, it's not about running fast. I would say, you know, if you're thinking about how, how how to prepare for the run, like you said, make sure you're ready for the bike, make sure you're strong. So if you're going to do anything, I would say, yeah, do some run pacing, run a bunch of Hills. So you're really a strong runner. Um, but besides being strong and able to hold form well for a long time, like that, like you said, it's not about run speed. So, um, be super fit and. Don't be injured. And, um, yeah, don't, don't worry about a ton of speed going in and unless you're really at that pointy end.
2: The last thing that I would add to that is make sure you're well-practiced in the shoes that you're going to wear because the difference between Kona and other races is one, the humidity and the heat. And so you get a lot more, um, blisters and, and the general idea of people get excited about the world championships. They're going to, I'm going to pull out my fastest, best race flats and so, um, be sure that you can run a marathon in them. Be sure that you—they handle being very, very wet well, and your feet will be happy. And then the other sort of pro tip to know is that entire way back on the Queen K has a nasty camber in the road, so you want to make sure that you're you're able to run well that whole last 10 12 kilometers coming back in the shoes that you train in because we're used to nice even flat uh roads for the most part on a lot of these races and they're very strict about the rules they put the pylons up and the cones up and they say you have to run on this side of the road on this side of the cones and there is a nasty camber in that whole last section and um that can if you're in a pair of race flats that you haven't trained in a bunch and you don't have the support you need and at the back half of a marathon that can slow you right down so you know, that's a, a little pro tip for you there in terms of whatever fancy shoes you're gonna whip out for the world championships. Be sure you're well practiced in soggy conditions on a camber and know that, hey, my ankles, calves, knees, hips, and all that aren't gonna blow out and, and you know, there's nothing slower than walking and you don't wanna be walking that last 10K because of that. So make sure you can keep running in those suckers at the end.
1: That is a good tip. I guess yeah. the other the, the only thing we didn't really touch on is also just chafing in general. And with the salt water and the amount of sweat, you're going to sweat. Um, you want to make sure you have your chafing situation figured out pretty well from the start of the swim to the end of the run.
2: Yeah. I think yeah. you know there's a lot of tips that we could add for Kona in terms of race day and race day execution. I think as it gets closer, that's a whole nother podcast. So there's like so many things that we can talk about, but staying true to the theme of 10 weeks out, the things that you can start to prepare and start to think about, um, you Get know, those miles the, in your the, shoes, you know, I think. You know, we've we've given people a lot of really good food for thought here today.
0: Yeah. I think doing, you know, one or two hard runs in your shoes in in the heat and humidity to get ready for that, what that feels like, practice that nutrition on the run. You don't need a ton though. Um, awesome guys. Well, I love talking about Kona. I am excited to do it again once we get closer and talk about a little bit more race execution. I know we all kind of wanted to go there in this one, but I, I appreciate you guys holding off on that too much. Um, anything else for the good of the order?
2: I think that gives people some good things to start thinking about 10 weeks out. You know, if, it, if people have questions or they're, uh, starting to put a plan together and they want to maybe run a few things past us, you know, ping us on the social media, Jesse puts it up every week saying, Hey, what are your questions? Start throwing them there for us and, and we'll get to them as we get closer. So, you know, send us, send either any of us, uh, the questions or even just up on the podcast Questions and show notes and stuff like that.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. And if you like the podcast, tell a friend.
2: Thank you guys. Thanks. Thanks, That was fun.
0: Bye. Bye.